Take it away, Derek. What's your question? Why do you guys talk about comics so much? Yeah. Comic books. Motherfucker, do you read them? 18 years. <laughs> Toothbrush is still fresh. <laughs> Did they have sex? Because, I mean, she Hulk, you know. Damn it, Tony. We went an entire episode without mentioning Maggot, and then you ruined it. Comic books. Motherfucker, do you... Read him. Batman's got his little fishbowl on his head, but <laughs> Superman doesn't. Cyclops was right. Except when he was wrong. Master Bruce, you are calm. I'm going to silently judge all of you. Shut up, beast. Shut up. <laughs> like, I've read it so many times, you know, it pretty much just crumbled in my hands. Come on, old chum. Comic books. Motherfucker, do you read them? See, I didn't hate Hellcat until you made me read this miniseries. It was just a joke, but you made it real, Justin. No. You made it real. I, I prefer my dazzler singing, like, Creedence Clearwater Revival songs at Australian bars. Titty discs. In it. That's what to be known as from now on. Like, I'm going to go into the Marvel Wikipedia and whatever it is. <laughs> Comic books. Motherfucker, do you read them? Hey guys, welcome back to another exciting episode of Comic Books. Motherfucker, do you read them? Hey, what's up, guys? This is Derek, Derek WC. I'm going to be one of your hosts tonight. And of course, joining me tonight are two, count them, two of my fellow fan holes and comic book enthusiasts. Why don't you guys give a shout-out and let everybody know who's here tonight. Hey, it's Mike. And this is Justin. So, this is kind of a twofold thing, but I think mainly what the guys wanted to get together and do was kind of a what-if-themed show. Like, we're all big fans of Marvel's what-if, and we've all kind of cut our teeth reading Marvel what-if comic books. But I think also, if you're listening to this, hopefully the plan is to release this around the same time frame that the Fox, 20th Century Fox film Logan is released in theaters. So for my particular what-if issue, I kind of tried to pick a Wolverine story that was one of my favorites as well to sort of tie it in that way to the the film release as well. But mainly this is going to be just a uh, generic kind of stories from the spinner rack what-if themed episode of comic books motherfucker do you read them so that's basically what we're doing tonight i guess if we're going in chronological order i i think the first issue is going to be mine because it's from what if volume two issue number seven and that's got a cover date of December 1989, but I guess if you look at the officially official release date, it was September 1989. Had a cover price of $1.25. And the what if in question is, what if Wolverine was an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D.? And it's written by Jim Valentino and penciled by everybody's favorite, Rob Liefeld. Yay! So, yeah, so, I mean, the, the, you know, basically image guys before they were, you know, before they were image pretty much, you know. And uh, what I basically did, because I'm lazy, is I cribbed a synopsis from the Marvel Wiki and slightly tweaked it to fit my needs and wants and desires for this show. So I'll go ahead and read that real quick, and then I guess we can talk about the issue. After his first battle with Hulk and Wendigo, 
James Hudson and the Canadian government agree to put Wolverine on loan to S.H.I.E.L.D. for his next mission. It seems that HYDRA has breached and infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D.'s internal security using advanced life model decoy technology. Fury needs Wolverine's hypersenses to track down the robots and his adamantium claws to destroy them. Without missing a beat, Logan guts Fury's second-in-command, Dum Dum Dugan, who turns out to be a life model decoy himself. Shocked that Hydra has gotten so close to him, Fury sends Wolverine and Black Widow to eliminate all the other life model decoys in the helicarrier. They come back in about 45 minutes, having destroyed half of the operating crew on board. Focusing then on the capture of his right-hand man, Dum Dum Dugan, Fury makes their next priority to raid Hydra's base in the Appalachians and rescue him. The three of them, along with a handful of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, breach Hydra's base. They arrive to find Dum Dum near death at the hands of Madame Hydra and Baron Von Strucker. Wolverine cuts off Strucker's Satan Claw, putting the villain on the ropes. At the same time, Widow defeats Madame Hydra. Fury stops Logan from delivering the killing blow to Strucker so he can step in to finish the blood feud himself. Fury ultimately electrocutes Strucker, killing his arch-foe once and for all. Fury commends Wolverine on a job well done and offers him a permanent position with S.H.I.E.L.D. Logan, ready for a change, accepts Fury's offer, moving quickly through the ranks to Fury's new second-in-command. Happy with his new position, when Professor X and Nightcrawler come by to bring him onto the X-Men, as in the 616 universe, he ends up turning them down in this universe, but offers to have S.H.I.E.L.D. look after their people. Meanwhile, a vengeful Baron Von Strucker life model decoy avenges the real Strucker's death by sabotaging Fury's flying Ferrari, causing it to spiral out of control. Rather than let the crash hurt innocent civilians, Fury manages to crash it into the river at the cost of his own life. At the funeral, Dum Dum advises Wolverine he intends to retire, and Logan becomes director of S.H.I.E.L.D. As director, Logan uses his position to greatly change his world. He starts by shutting down the production of Dr. Stephen Lang's Sentinels. This in turn prevents the Dark Phoenix from coming into existence at all. Furthermore, Wolverine discredits Senator Robert Kelly, which defeats the Mutant Registration Act, and stops the days of future past from coming to pass. Wolverine would then teach his world to coexist with mutant kind peacefully, and his name lived on in posterity. Long live the Wolverine. So that, that that's basically like, you know, the, the long and short of the story. This is kind of one of my favorite Wolverine stories. It's on my top ten list. I know Rob Liefeld gets a lot of crap, but this is kind of early Rob Liefeld. I think maybe... Scott Williams as the inker is kind of an unsung hero because maybe it doesn't quite look as Rob Liefeldy as Rob Liefeld would go on to look. I don't know. Maybe you guys, you know, have different opinions on that. But I, I guess maybe just because I read this when I was a kid and, you know, I probably just bought it off a spinner rack, probably from like a 7-Eleven or a Quick Stop or something. I, I kind of am of the opinion this doesn't look quite as bad as some of the more infamous or notorious work from Rob Liefeld. I know you guys were kind of making fun of it earlier, but I, I do kind of like that two-page splash that tries to recreate 
Incredible Hulk, like 180 and 181 with the whole Hulk, Wolverine, Wendigo fight and stuff. And, you know, long and short of it for me is I, I just think this is like a fun piece with a bunch of action. I think it was pretty influential on me as far as me wanting to create my own comic book characters. Like the the, the look of Black Widow in this kind of inspired certain characters that I created in my own comic universe and stuff. And I, I know that look is probably more based on designs that George Perez did in things like Marvel Premiere and stuff like that. But I, I think this is where I saw it first, and I, I kind of liked her with long hair and was kind of sad when Wolverine chopped it all off and stuff like that. But that's that's kind of my long and short on this this what if piece so i guess i'm kind of curious what you guys think of it if this is something you've read before or if this is something new to you and kind of what you guys thought of it i had never read this before you guys know me like i i'm not crazy about wolverine and even in the what if series like i kind of like you know kind of avoided this these issues so like i i think i remember like seeing this and like i thought the cover was like really cool but you know even though I like S.H.I.E.L.D. and Black Widow, like I never read this as a kid, so this was totally new to me, and I had no idea Liefeld did the interiors, and uh, I thought they were pretty well done. You know, like my only like little quibble, you know, like like Mike and I were kind of talking about earlier is like in that two-page spread where like, you know, Hulk, Wolverine, and Wendigo were fighting, like I think, I think Hulk's arm looks a little like squished up wonky looking but like yeah the, the uh artwork for this issue was like really cool it was a really good story too and actually it was one that has a happy ending like you know no one like dies like a really horrible death and it has like a you know like the world doesn't come to an end like the x-men aren't killed like spider-man doesn't die a horrible death like thor doesn't get killed like <laughs> and they actually like prevent some pretty famous stories from happening so like i thought that was pretty cool yeah i guess like the default setting for mutant kind is to be in pain and misery so when you stick them in a what if maybe the the alternative is to actually give them all a happy ending right so that's that i mean and and it is a nice kind of happy ending it's it's funny to me to think that you know i mean i guess i guess in some sense this is probably something that is a, a contributing factor to the the fan aura that is and and will become for Wolverine you know here's an example of you know just based on Wolverine's actions like the world is a is a better place you know depending on what position of power he's put in but you know I mean I, I, at the time I think I, I had no preconceived notions of Wolverine I just was you know a kid when I was reading this and it was like he was another cool Marvel character and like you said, it's just kind of a nice, you know, happy ending for the most part for, for most of the characters, even though he doesn't really get to be part of the whole X-Men family. And, and I'm kind of glad you got a chance to read this, because I know you're kind of a fan of Black Widow. And I know it's it's not like it was very in-depth or anything, but I mean, you know, she, she plays a, a considerable role in this as far as the the battle sequences go and, and she kind of goes one-on-one -on -one with Viper or Madam Hydra and stuff. So, and, and I thought she looked pretty cool in it as well. So that's, that's another plus as far as I'm concerned for this book. I think I, I probably hazard a guess that this is probably the first time I had ever seen or heard of Black Widow, I think. So, But uh, I, I will disagree with you on one thing. Like I, I kind of like prefer her short hair look like from the 90s, I think. 
Well, none of that's fair. I mean, I, it, you know what's funny is, I mean, some of it, we were kind of, I think you guys were joking that maybe her hair got cut in this because maybe Liefeld got tired of drawing it. But I guess <laughs> you could you could also make the argument that, you know, being a fighter, you know, like maybe it's it, it's a legitimate request, you know, that that yeah. the hair was getting in the way and she just kind of wanted to be kind of no nonsense and, you know, just concentrate on the battle instead of her hair, you know, and it's like, well, that makes sense too. I, I, I always kind of like that whole, like, I guess, you know, 70s, 80s look for her, you know, like I, I, I kind of thought that was kind of cool, but I guess I've always been more, I've always had more of a penchant for the ladies having long hair. And I think, I think my gut reaction usually is when somebody chops their hair off is like, Oh my God. You know, like, I think that's just my yeah. gut reaction just from a personal standpoint. And it's, it's not any reflection on, you know, what, what your preferences or, or, or that kind of, you know, that character or anything. It's just, I, I just think that's my, my general reaction when somebody does that, you know, but that's all. I, I wish someone could like write a story and it would be like, what if a Wolverine opened a barber shop? <laughs> Wolverine did give Storm like her new haircut, like that she currently wears in her in the the current day comics. So, oh, yeah. so no, he he definitely has the chops for it, I guess. But I I had read this before, and like not not maybe when it came out, but like certainly like later on, and you know when I was doing a read through of like every single what if and. You know, it's it's pretty cool. Like I think, like you said, it's kind of it's like this is when Liefeld kind of like gave a fuck, basically. Like, or you know, maybe he was just kind of making his bones, and he, uh, you know, he he put a lot of work into stuff. And I mean, it, it's not perfect, but it's certainly this it, it it hasn't evolved to his like you know style of like grotesquery yet, basically. So. Yeah, but, um, it, 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 it's always interesting to wonder, like I said, I, I don't know how much of that is Scott Williams, like, because, you know, I, I, I remember hearing the stories about his work on Hawk and Dove, and it, it always seemed to me to be like, oh, well, Liefeld drew a bunch of stuff in Hawk and Dove, but then, like, if you pay attention to it, like, people that inked a book like Carl Kessel or, or just reading about, like, the way it was worked on, and then looking at the backgrounds, you'll notice, like, all of a sudden there are all these random crates and boxes in the middle of fight scenes. And it was sort of either editorial or the inker or whoever, it was their way of embellishing like, Oh, there's actually a background going on among all this kind of Liefeld chicanery. That's just, you know, muscle bound guys punching each other, you know? And, and so it, it kind of cracks me up when I, I look at Hawk and Dove now. And I always kind of tend to wonder, especially in the early work, I'm all, Oh, is anybody, sort of maybe not ghosting but like at least kind of compensating for for maybe you know you know maybe he always drew the way he drew but there were other people kind of making up the difference and maybe making feet look a little better or what have you you know yeah, like, and maybe you never know. Yeah, how much of that was, you know, like how many of feet, how many foots, feet, whatever were added in by, you know, the anchors or whatever. But no, like I, I liked it for the most part. I think there are some very cool images in this, like your avatar, like the Hulk versus getting the Wolverine getting in between Hulk and Wendigo or whatever, you know, various other things. But I mean, as for the story, yeah, you're. This is kind of a like. Wolverine.
Green is the bestest story, basically. And, you know, it, it's it's pretty fun. And since I guess it's since it's like fairly early on into that, you know, when his fan aura was just starting to like approach its peak, basically. So, you know, it it it, it wasn't tiresome at this when the point when this issue was released. So, you know, if if you were a Wolverine fan, this was probably like crack for you. So, you know, I can I can I can get behind that. And, you know, as for the story itself, like I liked it. I like you can't think too hard about it. Like some of the things I thought were kind of like reading it again. And some of the things were kind of like silly, like. I was kind of like, man, he he got like Fury gut struck her with the old like stick a fork in a electrical socket <laughs> trick or whatever. Yeah. Like I was like, okay, but and then yeah, and then Fury just kind of dies in a flying car crash or something. Like I was kind of like, oh, I feel like the electrical socket thing was like a twofold thing. It's like he had to kill Strucker, but then technically it's like. I didn't kill Strucker. It was the electrical output that killed Strucker. So, like, <laughs> I'm morally clean. You know, like, so, like, I, I felt like it's, like, a code-approved way to, like, kill the bad guy without making the, the hero seem like he <laughs> violated some kind of antiquated see, moral, you know, oath and or, see, this or is, function or whatever. I, and I was thinking, like, this is the difference between, like, like David Hasselhoff Fury and Sam Jackson Fury, like you know, like this this Fury's kind of like you know Wolverine's like, oh, don't interfere with this fight, like you know, this is a battle of whatever, like honor or or this is a grudge match or whatever. But if it was like Samuel L. Jackson Fury, he'd be like, you guys shoot this motherfucker in the back. <laughs> it's like interfere, motherfucker. I'm begging you. Yeah. But yeah, no, I enjoy this issue, like, for the most part. I think another thing I really liked about it is this is a story from, like, back when S.H.I.E.L.D. was cool. Because I think, you know, like, in the early 2000s, S.H.I.E.L.D. became kind of like this, like, you know, slimy, kind of, like, oppressive meddling group that, like, always, like, showed up and was going to, like, you know, throw you into some dark hole even if you haven't, you know, done anything. But like I, I always like Shield because you know, I like stuff like James Bond, and I always kind of like spy and espionage type stuff. So I like reading about Shield. So this kind of like brings back memories of like when you know Nick Fury was running around like doing like cool spy stuff and like saving the planet, and he you know, yeah he and wasn't like is, up, yeah. Look, this is also I feel like it's like before Shield became like sort of like omnipotent, like almost mm -hmm. like because. Fury, like, it's kind of like Nick Fury's like, I know everything there is to know about this organization, except for the fact that, like, 50% of my employees are robots. <laughs> like, feel like, and, well, you know, I don't know, and, I feel... That, that part of the story, I mean, you, you could almost have the same conversation we always have about what if, how it's somewhat indicative of future storylines or things that will eventually come to pass. I mean, you it, it's not the same story, but you can sort of point to, like, Captain America and the Winter Soldier as a film and kind of go, well, you know, it's not life model decoys, but nearly half of S.H.I.E.L.D. was made up of Hydra agents in that movie. And here you're like, oh, well, nearly half of the Helicarrier was filled with, you know, life model decoys from Hydra. So it's not, it's yeah. not quite that that far removed, you know, in terms of conceptually, you know? 
Batman Nightcast, a thrilling new podcast from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, hosted by Ryan Daly and Chris Franklin. Nightcast chronicles the Cape Crusaders' adventures in Batman and Detective Comics after Crisis on Infinite Earth. Highlights from this legendary era include Batman number 400, Legends, Mike Barr and Alan Davis, Batman Year One, Batman Year Two, Max Allen Collins, Ugh. Um, the new Jason Todd, Ugh. Millennium. You're not doing this right. Let me take over. Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle. Alan Grant from Jurassic Park? Did you hear me say Norm freaking Brayfogle? Oh, yeah. Son of the Demon. The Killing Joke. A Death in the Family. Batman Year Three. A Lonely Place of Dying. Alan Grant, Alan Davis, Max Allen Collins. Why are there so many people named Alan from this era of Batman? The Rise of Tim Drake. Legends of the Dark Knight. And that's just up until 1989. Did anything exciting happen with Batman after that? You'll have to tune in to find out. Batman Nightcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find it on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Oh, we forgot to mention your favorite issue, when Batman fires Dick Grayson. You want to find another co-host? All right, well, I guess if, if nobody else has anything else to say, I guess we'll go next down the list chronologically and I think that brings us to the issue that Justin picked so I'm going to let him tell everybody the issue that he decided to bring to our what if jamboree and and take it from here my pick is what if the X-Men died on their first mission and this is what if volume 2 number 9 and has a publishing date of January 1990, written by Roy Thomas and illustrated by Rich Buckler. And unlike Derek, who is a dirty, dirty thief, I wrote my own synopsis. In Scotland, Maura Mataggart receives a letter stating Professor Xavier is very ill and asks her to come at once. She leaves, but not before taking Rain with her. Later, she arrives at the X-Mansion and is greeted by Hank McCoy. He tells her the letter was from him. The group meet Xavier, but he appears very cold and closed off emotionally. Hank informs them that some time ago, the X-Men fought the living island Krakoa, but were killed when the island rose from the planet and flew off into space. Later, a transmission from Count Nefaria informs the world that he is, along with his Animen, taking control of America's strategic missile force. With the FF and the Avengers unavailable, Hank takes it upon himself to contact other mutants in the hope of stopping Nefaria. He contacts the Scarlet Witch, her brother Quicksilver, Namor's cousin Namorita, Banshee's daughter Teresa, and Thunderbird's brother James. The mutants, along with Hank and Rain, are transported to the base in Colorado where they battle the Animen. During the battle, Dragonfly manages to hypnotize the mutants, but with the guidance of Xavier, Rain manages to transform into a wolf for the first time and attacks Dragonfly, freeing the others. Nefaria boards the jet to escape, but is given chase by Banshee. She manages to destroy the jet, but the explosion engulfs her too. The young James, fearing she has fallen to the same fate as his brother, races to catch her, and she survives. The mission ends with Xavier asking the mutants to remain together as a new team of X-Men. Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver say they have obligations but will come as summoned. The others, along with Mara, remain with Xavier as a new team of X-Men. I actually did not get this from a spinner rack. I bought this from a flea market, and I actually bought quite a number of what-if comics from this one guy at the flea market. I seem to remember he usually had like a lot of Marvel books, and I remember buying a lot of those like Jim Lee X-Men cards from this guy too. So I, you know, that guy probably got a lot of my like allowance and, you know, like mowing the yard and doing chores money. I want to say like I bought this in 
like spring, maybe May of 1990, because my brother was born in July of 90. And I remember having this like just like a little bit before he was born for, for some reason. I don't know why I remember that. Yeah, like like I've read this too. Like obvious, like I, I think I've read every single what if except for maybe some of the, like the newer ones. I like this one, but I feel like it's overshadowed by other ones that have a similar premise. Like I know there's there's another one. I think it's I forgot if it's in volume one or volume two, but it's like what if the original X Men remain together or something? And mm. I don't know. I felt that it, it, it kind of had a like a, the, almost the opposite premise as this. But I don't know. It felt similar for whatever reason. Like things like turn out like differently, basically. No, but I, I like this for the most part. Like I, I think it's kind of cool. Like who they scrounge together. Like like nowadays, like you know, it doesn't matter how many like X Men die on a mission. It's like there's like 50 million reserve X Men like to fill a team. But now, it, like back then, it felt like you know you really had to like scrape a the bottom of a barrel to get like enough mutants together to form an X-Men team. So it's kind of like charming like that. I I think one of the things I always liked was I'd always like thought it would be cool if Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver like, you know, officially joined the X-Men, you know, Quicksilver, he's worked with them and he's been a member of like X-Factor and whatnot. But, you know, I I always wanted to see the two of them join the X-Men because it would be kind of like a, a nice contrast because, you know, they spent so much time like in the you know the early issues kind of fighting them when they were members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Another thing about this issue, I think this was like when I kind of like started to catch on that, you know, I was like, you know, hey, like there, there are like certain comics I like. They're written by the same person because I read like quite a number of Invaders comics from the 70s and those were by Roy Thomas. And, you know, I read this and, you know, kind of like read other stuff by Roy Thomas, you know, he, I think anytime in a, a silver age, whenever like Stanley left a book, like Roy Thomas seemed to like kind of take over. Like I, you know, he, he did write the X-Men before the giant size number one. And he took over Daredevil and Avengers and a lot of other books. So like, I kind of, I like the Stanley stuff, but like whenever I'm like rereading like early silver age stuff, like whenever it's like, whenever I hit the Roy Thomas issues, I'm like, yeah, like it's going to get good now because it, like, especially Daredevil, if you go back and read those Stanley issues, like, man, like, they're all over the place, and it's really wacky and kind of – you can tell, like, Stanley's just making it up, like, on the fly. And then, like, when Roy Thomas comes in, he's like, okay, we're going to, like, clean some of this stuff up, and we're going to, like, you know, we're actually going to, like, do something and have, like, kind of a theme instead of, like, you know, meeting Kazar and, like, you know, maybe fighting aliens and, you know, having – Matt pretend to be his own twin brother to fool, you know, Foggy and Karen. Oh, Mike Murdoch, guys. Yeah. So, like, when, when Roy Thomas takes over, he's like, you know, enough of this Mike Murdoch. We're going to get rid of that. And, you know, he, like, I think, like, a few issues after Roy takes over, he's like, hey, Karen, guess what? There is no Mike, and I'm Matt. He's like, what? Don't, or didn't they just say something like, oh, Mike died or something? Don't look into it. Like... <laughs> Mike Murdoch died on the way back to his home planet. I, I think this speaks to to even the issue that you're covering because that that's one of the things I liked about this issue. I mean, I I probably never owned this issue, but I'm pretty sure I read it because I had so many friends who were X Men fans. So I'm sure 
this comic like fell into my lap at some point, you know, that I, and I read it just to, you know, kill time or shoot the breeze or what have you, you know. And I think looking at this, you know, critically for the show and everything and kind of going, oh, look, it was, you know, it was written by Roy Thomas. One of the things that is quickly apparent is that this takes elements that you already know. Like not only does it sort of pull from giant size X-Men number one and twist the outcome of that so that all 13 X-Men who go to fight Krakoa are dead, but then it kind of continues events as they would have unfolded in the 616 universe by kind of drawing on what happens in X-Men 94, but then throwing the twist in that like, hey, the new X-Men, you know, the all new, all different X-Men aren't around because they're dead, so they can't combat Count Nefaria and, and his bad dudes and everything like that. So it's like, you're like, oh, well, then what do they do? You know, and so you've got, you know, and, and it plays on the idea that, you know, Beast is now uh, quitting the Avengers to spend time with Charles in his mansion so he doesn't, like, kill himself. And then, of course, you're thinking about things like, say, the current X-Men movies, you know, and, yeah. and some... And yeah, some I, I thought about you know. that. I was, yeah, me too. Oh, this is like Days of the Future Past, almost. Yeah, like, yeah, so you, you, you start thinking about things that, you know, in, in you know, obviously you didn't think about that when you read this when you were a little kid, but, you know, things like that sort of come to mind, you know, having gone through, you know, all those kind of permutations of the characters and everything. So, I mean, in that sense, it was kind of cool. And then seeing that, like, Rich Buckler drew it, I, I it's weird. I Like, I, I sort of had an impression of, of what I was going to expect from, you know, revisiting this with the art. And, like, some of it kind of is what I expected, but some of it I thought he was trying to maybe channel some of that Dave Cockrum style that came in those early issues of, of the X-Men as well. So that's, that, I mean, that's all I can say as far as the art goes, you know, I mean, it was, it was well done, you know, but I, I think sometimes when I see Rich Buckler, I expect like, you know, Neil Adams swipes and like kind of a poor man's or even like, not even a, I guess that's the wrong way to put it, but like, I, I expect like a pretty, pretty decent, like good replication of Neil Adams, but sometimes you get other, other things thrown into it and this is something where i was kind of like oh well that's not quite what we got with this issue you know but that it, it still sort of captured that flavor that most x-men books had at the time you know and then i guess the other thing that was interesting is you know and, and i you know we've discussed this a bit briefly but i was i was doing my spider woman run and seeing siren in this issue it was interesting because i had never realized like she shows up in Spider-Woman as a villain, and then, I guess, Spider-Woman and, like, some of the X-Men, you know, bring her back to Xavier's, and then that's when she sort of starts her path. So she almost was kind of like a a pre-rogue type character, you know, somebody who was not quite on the straight and narrow, but then was taken in by Xavier, you know, because of, obviously, who her father was and, and stuff like that. But, it, you know, it was interesting to see how they sort of drew on, you know, those characters that were, you know, pretty much remaining, you know, like that they could use to sort of form like yet a third team of X-Men and stuff. But, you know, overall, I, I, I liked it. I liked revisiting it. I guess it made me think about, even though most people think Professor Xavier's a jerk, it sort of made me reflective on like how I sort of 
I, I still like Professor Xavier, even if people do think he's a jerk. You know, like I, I guess in some sense I can I can relate to some of the shit he goes through from time to time, even if he is a, uh, a you know, to most people he can be a creepy, weird old jerk face or whatever. But like I kind of, you know, see like you know some of the the responsibility and pain he feels and all that kind of stuff. So I I I, I know I make fun of it all the time, but like I I do genuinely like Professor Xavier as a character. So, you know, again, seeing a comic where he sort of has some of the spotlight and he's going through a kind of character arc where he's feeling incredibly guilt-ridden over the death of, of essentially his, his, you know, sort of family, you know, and then, and then seeing him rebuild that, I mean, that's, that's pretty cool as well. Yeah. Another thing I liked and kind of made me laugh is the very last page where the Watcher is kind of, you know, talking about this event. And he's like, it seems there will always be X-Men and X-Factor and New Mutants and Excalibur. And <laughs> it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. yeah. And they're going to really have to scrape the bottom of the barrel to fill out Excalibur. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of those old what does where there there was the gag where it was like a couple, two or three panel gags where, you know, the guy comes into the the comic book shop and he's like geez man like it's been so long since i've collected comics it's like you know he's like and, and the gag's like you know why don't you give me a spider-man book and and the comic dealer's like sure i can give you a spider-man book but first you gotta tell me which one do you want and he's got like three or four of them where he's like do you want amazing do you want spectacular do you want web you know and and it's like okay and the guy's freaked out and he's like well that's too many books to choose from like why don't you start me off with something simple he's like how about the avengers and he's like well it ain't just the avengers anymore you know you got the mighty avengers and you got the west coast avengers and don't forget about solo avengers and he's like never mind never mind just give me an x-men book and then he's got like five books he's like sure <laughs> which one do you want and the guy like falls over you know and faints or whatever but like that's that's kind of what that reminds me of so take your that Hey Fanholes Podcast listeners, Derek, Derek WC here for another Fanholes Figure That segment. This is going to be my review for the Marvel Select, the Watcher action figure from Diamond Select Toys. Marvel Select is a line of action figures based on superheroes and supervillains from the Marvel Universe that are available only from comic shops or have exclusives at specialty retailers like the Disney Store. Uatu, the Watcher, stands at 7 inches like the majority of action figures in the Marvel Select line and comes with a purple moonstand base. This release marks the first and only occasion The Watcher has ever been released as an action figure. Originally, back in 2005, the standard retail price of this figure was about $24.99, but has since skyrocketed in value on the aftermarket. There was a reissue that was announced for late 2014, but ultimately that ended up being cancelled. I suspect that it has something to do with the fact that the character was a character that originated in the Fantastic Four comic books, and the ongoing rights battles between 20th Century Fox and Marvel Studios that led to the re-releases cancellation. 
I can count up to about 18 points of articulation, though the upper half of the figure certainly has the most of the articulation within his arms. He has hand cuts, glove swivel, elbow and shoulder swivel, and arms. The legs can slightly articulate at the crotch, but there's no articulation at the knees. And the soft plastic robes can kind of get in the way, so there's not really much reason to articulate his legs to begin with. The character frequently makes appearances as the Rod Serling of the What If comic book series, introducing readers to various alternate universes in every issue. Uatu was charged with observing the various Earths without interfering in their development. However, the Watcher has forsaken his orders on several occasions to assist humanity and the Fantastic Four against the most deadly of threats, including the planet-eating entity known as Galactus, for instance. The Watcher's seven-inch scale makes him tower over a Marvel Universe collection, but he can also fit in fairly nicely as a somewhat smaller watcher with your Marvel Legends collection. The sculpt is excellent, and I'm definitely happy to have him as part of my Marvel action figure collection. If you want to learn more about The Watcher and Marvel Comics, keep listening to Fanhole's podcast and comic books, motherfucker. Do you read them on fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. Okie dokie, so I, I think that pretty much wraps things up as far as what if the new X-Men had died on their very first mission, and I guess the final issue of the evening is going to be something that Mike brought to the table, so I'm going to let him tell us what he brought and what it's all about. I brought What If Volume 2, Number 70, What If the Silver Surfer Had Not Betrayed Galactus. I did buy this off a spinner rack, like in a grocery store, and like I I explained on previous shows where we've talked about What If, like, you know, the grocery store always seemed to have a ton of What Ifs, and I don't know if it was because they ordered a lot of them or because they just weren't selling, but, like, I always had a good, like, range of maybe, like, you know, six to eight issues of What If, like, at any given time, but... um. This this what if is like significant to me, not only because it's one of the, you know, the handful of first I actually bought, but it's probably the one of the first issues, like like you said, Derek, like that Wolverine. What if like introduced you to Black Widow? This probably introduced me to the Fantastic Four. Like I was only reading like X-Men and Spider-Man books at this time. So like I was kind of like, oh, yeah, like I know of the Fantastic Four and I know the Silver Surfer and Galactus, but I've never actually read anything with them in it. So this this probably was like my introduction to that. It is written by Chuck Dixon, well-known comic book writer, drawn by Joe Barney and Don Hudson. I guess they do a kind of sharing job like the and some they do breakdowns for certain pages and pencils for others. And then Joe, I'm looking at the credits right now, like Joe Barney does the pencils for pages one through seven and just the breakdowns for eight through 15 and 20 to 27. And then Don Hudson does the inks for pages one through seven, the pencils for 16 and 19 and the finishes for pages eight through 10 and 15 to 27. And then you've got another inker, Michael Cranger, who does finishes for like 11 pages, 11 through 14. 
And then on top of all that, you obviously you've got the colorist Bob Sharon and like, so yeah, this is a pretty expansive art team for one issue, but I feel like, you know, what if was like the, the tryout book for a lot of like new people. So that's probably why they were like, Hey, like finish this page kid. Like, you know, it, it seems like they always put like, you know, new writers on what ifs at some point. Kind of reminds me of what I always learned when, you would see like one or two writers write a screenplay and you're like, oh, well, that was really great. And then when you see like a really craptastic movie and you learn like, you know, it's like 15 different people like worked on the script for it, you know, and you're just like, oh, like you're like, I see what happened here. You know, it's yeah, like, too many cooks. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, yeah, like I wrote up my own summary for the issue, so I'll, I'll get with that. At the critical juncture of what, what I, I don't even remember, what issue of Fantastic Four is this based off of? Like number, like 40-something, 50-something? 48 is the first appearance of the Surfer, and then they're basically, it, it runs through to issue 50, so they're probably, yeah, the, this is probably at the, the climactic point of like issue 50, yeah. Yeah, so, like, when Reed Richards is threatening Galactus with the ultimate nullifier, basically, at, in the actual story, the Silver Surfer, like, stands against Galactus and forces him to leave the planet. But in this What If, he chooses not to betray Galactus. He attacks the Fantastic Four and recovers the ultimate nullifier for him. Galactus then kills the Watcher and forces the Fantastic Four to retreat back into the Baxter building. After recovering Alicia Masters from a panicking mob below, the Fantastic Four are accidentally locked into an adamantium bunker within their building. Outside, the Avengers attempt to defeat Galactus, but are all killed. Iron Man and Thor are felled by the Silver Surfer, and Galactus succeeds in, con in consuming the Earth. In the aftermath, the Fantastic Four emerge to a lifeless planet and discover Doctor Doom has, of course, survived as well. They board his ship and track Galactus down as he is attempting to consume another planet. Doom approaches Galactus, hoping to steal his power, but is halted by the Surfer. The two fight to the death as Doom's armor explodes and kills both of them. The Fantastic Four breach Galactus' ship, and Reed is separated from the rest. He finds the Wasp, who is also snuck aboard the ship back on Earth, and she leads Mr. Fantastic back to the Ultimate Nullifier. An unstable Reed Richards plans on using it to eliminate Galactus in revenge for the Earth, but ultimately cannot condemn the rest of the universe to nullification. Galactus acknowledges the wisdom in Reed's refusal to sacrifice everything for revenge, and erases the nullifier from existence. He then enters into a new pact with the Fantastic Four. They will be his new heralds and lead him to unpopulated worlds. In return, the Fantastic Four teach Galactus what it means to be human. So, yeah, the end. So, yeah, like, you know, pretty horrible. A lot of people die. Also, like, you know, everyone always, pretty much anyone who's familiar with What If always jokes about, like, you know, oh, Spider-Man dies in, like, every single What If or, like, almost every other What If. And, like, my, my addition to that is... Reed Richards always goes crazy, like with grief or madness or something. And like every other what if it feels like, like I, either be it like, you know, Sue has like chosen Namor over yeah, him or Sue has died or, yeah, the Earth has been destroyed or Dr. Doom does something. And Reed 
Reed ultimately proves he is a very unstable person, basically. So, and that happens in this issue too. So, I feel like that's a recurring "what if" trope. It's like what Reed reads pulling a Professor Impossible or something. Oh no, I I can't help anybody. I can't even help myself. Then we'll help each other, and like we did back in our boys' brigade days. Do you want to get the boys' brigade back together? Not exactly. I need you to make another one of these. You're, you're not, you're not holding. There's, there's nothing there. I don't. Oh, oh, you've got an invisible batsme. You know, Sally could turn and just invisible. Oh yes, yes. I share your pain, old friend. Yeah. I too have suffered terrible losses this year. It nearly broke me, but instead it only strengthened my resolve. Join me, and I can do the same for you. But, but you're all evil, though. I, I can't be a bad guy yeah exactly yep but yeah so i don't know what, what do you guys like have, first of all like have you guys read this issue before this is this is fairly new to me i think i i don't know when the new trade dress for the covers started but i can always kind of tell when it's one of those issues like th- this is in, in that same trade dress of that what if that you had us read with Kurt Busick and like this is kind of the yeah, same. Yeah, around of, the same. I, I think I had long since given like like I know I know the common thing between us all is you know obviously you know what if volume two and what if volume one have all the really good what if stories and then when you get into like the the what ifs from like you know two thousand eight and two thousand nine that's when they get all kind of those those weird one shots where we're not too fond of those those what ifs but like i i might even kind of just advise like that i i sort of i stopped reading it you know you know probably once it got somewhere out of the 20s or 30s you know so it's like when you get up into like issues like this in the 60s and the 70s like most of them with a few exceptions like are are pretty much brand new to me like i i remember a buddy of mine really liked havoc and i remember there was some issue about you know what if havoc did something or other because at that point they didn't even like put the question on the what if and it was like one issue in like the 80s or 90s or something but i mean other than that like i i can't think of too many issues outright that i've i've read so this this is brand new to me except for the fact that like i'm a huge fan of the silver surfer and i obviously read the original story so like i i have a good frame of reference for what the what if is trying to diverge from i mean i i kind of thought it was weird because it, it it's almost like they they left part of the story out or something you know like because because you're you're like Silver Surfer basically doesn't betray Galactus but I I mean I would think that the main instigator for him doing that in the first place was Alicia Masters and it, it felt weird that like either you know you think in a what if either she'd get killed or there would be some freak accident, and instead of crashing into Alicia Masters' apartment, you know, he crashes into, like, you know, I don't know, J. Jonah Jameson's apartment. He's like, get out of here, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and, like, that's why the world goes to shit, you know. But Truly, it's like, these humans deserve to be You know, like, like there's some, some instigating factor or something. And I felt like they just kind of glossed over that. It was more like... They're in the middle of the heat of the battle, and Reed brings the ultimate nullifier, and Surfer's just like, oh, 
blasting you, you're like, sorry, you know, like, I, I can't betray Galactus, like, that's it, you know, so it's like, they, they, it seemed like that part of it just sort of happened, and then everything after that seemed to be more of a interesting or solid story. It didn't seem like Chuck Dixon was too concerned uh, about why the surfer made the decision he made. He just had him make it, and then they sort of moved forward from there. What about you, Justin? Yeah, I, I had read this. At a at a certain point in the nineties, like my local Rite Aid had a you know, a steady supply of what if comics. So I, I bought a lot of what if comics from my Rite Aid and this is one of them. You know, I, I picked it up because I was a huge Fantastic Four fan and I was reading the book kind of like you know, I think I've said this before, but like I guess I was reading the Fantastic Four during its bomber jacket era that like a lot of fans don't really care about. They like they don't really care for that era because it's like the pre-Heroes Reborn era where like, you know, Reed and Doom supposedly died and whatnot. Bucket-headed thing. <laughs> yeah. I thought this was an okay story, kind of like Derek. It seemed like pieces of the story were missing. It's like, you know, they Torch goes to rescue Alicia, and then it's kind of like they forget about her. Or like, I, I don't know, I guess like she didn't get in, inside that time block, so I guess she died or whatever. But like, uh, oh, you she, know. Oh, she's there. Oh, was she? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, she survives. Like, I, I think I was joking with you. Like, they should have called this one, like, what if the Wasp joined the Fantastic Four? Because it seems like she kind of, <laughs> like, comes out of nowhere at the end. I was and am still, like, a, a Thor fanboy. So, like, seeing Thor die, even if it's fighting the Surfer, I was kind of like, mmm. Like, you know, kind of like, I was like, mmm. <laughs> I was, like, sitting there, look, it's the putty alien, and he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, a, well, at least, like, Thor kind of went out like a badass. All you ever see of Iron Man is, like, his, like, smoke coming out of his eye holes. Yeah. And he, I, that always reminded me of like Prowl dying in Transformers of the the movie. Like smoke comes out of all three of his like mouth, his mouth and his eye slits or whatever, and he just falls. And I'm like, wait, what happened? Like, <laughs> did the surfer like cook him inside there? It's funny that we always bitch and kvetch about like Spider Man always gets killed in a what if, and even though you don't outright see it on camera, you'd have to assume that. Spider-Man also dies, even though he's not <laughs> yeah. one of the guys fighting the last fight against Galactus that gets wiped out. But you'd have to assume that at some point he perishes, you know, either in New York or on the planet Earth. But you know what's weird for me, too, is, like, the idea that, like, the FF could just get into, like, a bunker and they'd be fine. Like, because, I, I guess mainly because I... I mean, I'm sure there's some example out there that somebody could point to where Galactus has, you know, drained a planet of, of all its energies and then it was just like a dead husk or something like that. But, like, I always feel like, you know, th there were the graphic novels where Galactus would, like, you know, basically, like, molt into the planet. And it's like, by that point, it's like, dude, like, no bunker is going to protect you from that. Like, the, the planet is atomized and he ingests it you know like it's just like there's nothing there you know like and and like so so like that part of it seemed to be kind of a you you just sort of have to suspend your disbelief i guess or something like that it's just like oh okay it's like it, it's like galactus eating a planet is tantamount to like i don't know 
The Walking Dead or something, and it's like you just have to <laughs> let it go, you know. And I'm like, I, I don't think that's how it would go down, but you know, just for the sake of the story, you're just like, all right, well, I'll just I'll just let that go, you know. Like the the Earth is sort of a barren husk, but you know, Doctor Doom and the FF are going to go off to sort of get vengeance on Galactus, and and that propels the story forward, you know, and and continues. I mean, you know, the the story I I don't think is is you know, so bad. I mean, I think, I think it's all right. I mean, it, it's fine, but I, I don't know. The art kind of reminded me of like the, the first season of the Fantastic Four cartoon, you know, where like Galactus was like licking his lips and shit where I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. He, he like some, some of the panels look kind of goofy to me. Like I, yeah. I, I respect the intent of them. Like, like really a, a fight to the death between Thor and Silver Surfer should be pretty epic. And, and Captain America flinging his shield at Galactus's head in defiance and then getting like atomized. Like that should be pretty awe-inspiring and epic. But I think the way the art plays out, it, it feels a little goofy. Like, you know, you know what? It kind of reminded me, like those scenes of it. It looked like Bruce Timid drawn those scenes or something. Like, especially mm-hmm. like the close up on Captain America's face because yeah. he's only he's got like those Superman like just the dots for eyes basically with no you know white around them or whatever. But hey, like uh, I, I was joking with you guys earlier. It was like Hawkeye managed to like hit Galactus in the face with a exploding arrow, and that that was the breaking point. Galactus was like, "Oh man, that guy's got exploding arrows. I better kill all these guys really fast. <laughs> can't let him hit me with it. Can't yeah. let him hit me with another one of those." Yeah, you keep you keep telling yourself that. I I, I think the panel after that's pretty hilarious, where Giant Man's like tries to punch Galactus, and he just fucking knocks him away. Yeah, like, that panel, I was like, I wanted to be, like, all, like, comic book nerd and be like, I don't think Giant Man was wearing that costume at the time. But I was like, oh, I'll let it go, whatever. <laughs> it's an emergency, maybe he couldn't find his other costume. Yeah, it's like it's like when they do those those Marvel zombie books, I always feel the same way, where it's like, you know, they, they want a certain look for the zombie character, so they sort of ignore continuity or whatever where you're like well wait a minute like if he's married to you know spider-man's married to mary jane when this happens like these guys can't be in these costumes but then yeah they are you know like type thing so there's i guess there's a little bit of that i mean no that i always used to think i was like okay well reed's got sue and things got like alicia and i'm like that and the, the torch must be like i guess it's you and me wasp like you know the last two humans on earth Unless he pulls a post-Secret Wars and tries to get with Alicia. <laughs> or that, yes. But no, yeah, like, I, I just, I can see your complaints, and, like, I I just have nostalgic fondness for this one, just because it's one of the first I read, like, feature heavily featuring the Fantastic Four, so. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it, it definitely is a showcase for the Fantastic Four. I mean, I, I don't think they seem especially out of character or anything. I mean, obviously they, they, they've been through some heavy, heavy shiznit. So like, yeah, like you, you were fond of saying like, you know, Reed does get the, the, the cray cray look in his eyes, you know, and he's like, I'm going to ultimate nullifier your ass or whatever, you know? And, and then they sort of, you know, <laughs> he, he kind of talks himself out of it, you know? And, and yeah. you know, and, then and that, I, I, yeah. I, I like how Galactus is like, Man, dude, like, you're right. Like, having a device that wipes out the entire universe is a bad idea. Like, let me just take care of that. And he's like, boink. 
<laughs> like and it disappears. And I'm like, why didn't you do that before when he was threatening you with it? I, I did uh, tend to think of the the current Ultimates comic where Galactus is like a gold plated like life bringer instead of you know a, a world devourer or whatever you know and, and the idea that in this sense at least at the very very end of the story even though it's too late for the planet earth i guess but at the very very end it seems like oh okay well now they're all heralds of galactus and they're actively you know quote unquote problem solving you know they're they're making it so that galactus continues to live and he's this cosmic deity that's necessary for the universe but also you know he's they're not going out of their way to find populated planets they're just you know seeking out, you know, uninhabited planets and, and doing it that way. But then you'd think, like, if you had the fucking power cosmic and you're the silver surfer, like, you'd think that you would go out of your way to do that, too. And I, I guess if you go really, really in-depth into the history of that, it's like there were memory implants, and Galactus specifically was like, man, I don't want these uninhabited untasty planets like i want planets with life on them i want some cream filling yeah and and so it's like i i i think even though it's a happy ending it's a little fortuitous or or you know filled with positivity you know where it is it's not really looking in depth into the idea that you know just because you can find uninhabited planets doesn't mean like that's really what galactus needs to sustain himself you know like there there is that portion of it where if if surfer could have just pointed out uninhabited planets he would do it you know what i mean but but anyway well all i know is any book where wolverine dies even off panel makes me happy we had two two on this show so i'm really happy (laughs) yeah they were both off panel that's how ignominious wolverine's death was in both those books Tying it into the whole uh, Old Man Logan film theme or what have you. As superhero movies are becoming mainstream entertainment at theaters around the world, comic fans also have plenty of heroic action on the small screen to keep them sated while waiting for the next blockbuster. We are in a golden age of superhero television shows, with plenty of offerings from both the Marvel and DC universes, and the trend shows no sign of slowing down. To chronicle these recent shows and even examine some of the classics, we are proud to present Weekly Heroics, a two true freaks guide to heroes on TV. In every podcast, we'll be doing recaps of individual episodes of one Marvel show and one DC show until we catch up to them or some supervillains shut us all down. My name is Scott McGregor, and I'm the fastest podcaster alive. That's what she said. And I'm Chris Tyler, one of your agents of cool. To bring you this podcast, we each have to become someone else. We each have to become something else. Two, two, three. That's going to wrap it up for this week's episode. We, we've fulfilled our quota. We've talked about our three what-if-themed books. Two of them actually had Wolverine, or at least a vague reference to Wolverine. And 
yes, in the third one, Wolverine died off camera and was never mentioned. So, you know, obviously Wolverine was involved in all those books. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Comic Books, Motherfucker, Do You Read Them? And if you want to send us any comments, questions, and or concerns, you can email us at fanholspodcast at gmail.com. Of course, you can find our backlog of episodes. We've got not only the comic book show, but we've got... Sentai Saturdays, Toku Thursdays, Mobile Suit Mondays, and the Fan Holes Podcast proper. We've got Big in Japan, so we've got all kinds of shows for you guys to check out. Transformers Tuesdays, so you can find us on various social medias. We're on Tumblr, Twitter, Stitcher, you can stream us, iTunes, Facebook. We appreciate all the likes and feedback that we receive. And until the next time, this is going to be Derek, Derek WC. The X-Men are dead, and I killed them! Signing off. Hey, it's Mike, and we're going to use the ultimate nullifier and eliminate this podcast forever. This is Justin, and Silver Surfer blasts Iron Man, and he's like, Whoa, taking it like a champ. Oh, God. That guy just took one or six or seven for the team. <laughs> and Iron Man, like, stumbles through the rubble. He, like, has a vision of, like, a bottle of whiskey. And he's like, wow, wow, let's find you. <laughs> whiskey. <laughs> I'll find you, whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. We're bad people. (laughs) We are. We really are. telling Carol about it in the fifth issue, and it's like, is this the daddy story? Are you telling me the daddy story? I thought you weren't going to tell me the daddy story. Is this a thing? Are you telling me that I'm telling you the daddy story? I thought you said it wasn't anybody's business. I thought that's why you punched Tony Stark in the balls. No, it's your business, because it's my business, because I'm telling you now, because I feel like it. So anyway, like, I was totally going out with this guy, Ryan. Who's Ryan? Is he the daddy? No, it's just some guy I met online that I was banging and of course we were really careful and then I was worried I was pregnant and then I wasn't pregnant and then I felt all sad so then like I got myself pregnant so there's no daddy well there is a daddy but we just don't know who it is
like an issue of uh, Occupy Avengers where fucking Clint Barton is like getting uh, 50 bucks to stick his seed all over fucking fertilization. He's <laughs> like, I've been donating to sperm banks for years. Like, I could have babies everywhere. <laughs> like, that's how I managed to fund the Thunderbolts for years. <laughs> <laughs> you know how expensive it is to run a mountain headquarters? <laughs> High maintenance mountain <laughs> property. Oh, that sounds really awful. 